0: Our text for this morning's message comes from Jeremiah. We're going to be in Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there now with me. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. The days are coming, declares the Lord when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the promise of a coming Savior, Jesus. And God, we live on the other side of that promise. We have seen that promise come to fulfillment, but yet we wait and we hope and we trust your word, God, when you say you will return again. So I pray that you would speak to each person here this morning. God, I ask that your word would do its work upon us. God, whatever condition we may be in as we approach you this morning, we all need the same thing. We all need to be reminded again of your goodness, of your love, of your mercy toward undeserving people, and I pray that that truth would would seep its way into the cracks and crevices of our hearts today. Bless each one here, and God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So I have a, a friend who was a pastor in New York City for a number of uh, years, and he was, doing, he was starting a church from scratch, a church plant. And one of the things you do when you're starting a church from scratch is you don't have any people in your church, so you need to meet people. So he would spend a lot of his time uh, knocking on doors and a lot of time in coffee shops, too, just getting to know people and, and asking them questions. Now, in New York City, it's not a strange thing to be able to have these conversations with people. And he was able to, uh, he, had, he ended up kind of creating a list of questions that he would use over and over again. And one of the questions that he would ask people as he was just kind of getting to know them was this. What gives you hope? Simple question. Simple question. What gives you hope? And a lot of the people that he was dealing with were not necessarily Christians or people who had even been exposed to Christianity, but but what is it that gives you hope? And I want to take that question and ask that to you this morning. What gives you hope? And honestly, probably just as important, how secure is that hope? How firm, how sure, how certain is that hope? Today is the second Sunday during Advent, and in the Advent season, we, write, we light these candles like we did this morning. And traditionally, each of the candles is associated with a different theme. So usually the first Sunday is hope, uh, the second Sunday is peace, the third Sunday, that's when we light the pink candle. Most people think the pink candle is for the last Sunday. It's actually for the third Sunday, uh, the Sunday of joy. It's always been a, a particularly special time. And then there's the fourth Sunday, which is the Sunday of love. And then in the center, we have this white candle, which is the Christ candle. And traditionally, we'd light that on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. So hope is what I want to talk about today. I had a message prepared two weeks ago for the first Sunday in Advent, which is hope. So this week is supposed to be peace, but you're going to get what I had prepared for that instead. Now, when we think about hope, and you think about your relationship with hope, if you can think about it in those terms, I wonder how you would label or categorize your relationship with hope. Some of you are too young or too old to remember this, but back in the day when Facebook first started out, they had this feature that we all thought was pretty cool. You could put your relationship status on there. And as your relationship status, you could put you were either dating You were single, you were engaged, you were married. Or you could put, it's complicated. Meaning like you had a lunch date with somebody and you're not quite sure if you're in a relationship or or something like that. I would say, I would venture to guess that most of our relationships with hope would be characterized in this way. It's complicated. It's complicated. Hope is something that it is increasingly difficult to grasp hold of, it seems, during these days and these times. I don't know about you, but for the last few years, ever since we entered this whole time of the pandemic, the idea of hope seems more elusive than ever. Because when we make any plans at all, it seems like all of our plans are always contingent. It's always like, well, we are planning to do this so long as, right? So long as the numbers are, are down, so long as the, the airports are open, so long as we're able to travel like we would like to. So there's always a contingency with the plans that we make. And it's hard to be hopeful when everything in your life is contingent, right? It's not, not an easy thing at all by any means. And so we fluctuate, right? We we fluctuate on this spectrum. If our relationship with hope is complicated, there's kind of two ends of this spectrum. We fluctuate between despair on the one end and hope on the other, right? I think most of us, if, if I asked you to put an X somewhere along that spectrum, you would be able to sort of pinpoint where you are at with that. And the thing about... Hope, or at least our feelings of hope, our aspirations of hope, is they are affected by any number of things. Some of them spiritual, some of them physical. How hopeful do you feel today? The way you answer that question is going to depend, be dependent upon so many different factors. How much caffeine do you have in your system? How did your day go yesterday? What's your temperament? What's your genetic predisposition, right? What did you have for breakfast? Like, really, really basic things, and then all sorts of other stuff, too, right? So there's a million different reasons we would place ourselves at one end of that spectrum or another. So I want to take a look at that spectrum this morning. Now, at the extreme end of this spectrum, the opposite end of hope, we have Eeyore, is there anybody who does not know who Eeyore is? Okay. You can tell that in my house there has been a lot of uh, Winnie the Pooh playing because my sermon, Ill- so don't, don't fault me if my sermon illustrations for the next couple of months are solely Winnie the Pooh uh, objects. But Eeyore is this character in Winnie the Pooh, right? And Eeyore is not a happy dude. Eeyore is not a guy you would want to have over to your Christmas party. Eeyore is sad, he's got a tail that, that won't stay on, I don't understand it, he has like a tack with his tail that, I mean, I would be in a lot of pain and suffering too if that was me, um, but his tail is always falling off, and whenever Winnie the Pooh or, or Owl or Tigger or Piglet, somebody comes up to him and they want to include him in things, but he's, he, gets, he just gets sad, he doesn't really want to get his hopes up, but even when he agrees to go along with them, he's just like, well, I guess here we go again don't want to get my hopes up. And so he'll go along and he'll do it, but he's not very hopeful. And there's a reason people take on the characteristics of an Eeyore. It's because if if we don't get our hopes up, then they're not going to be crushed, right? And some of us have been burned before. So we we don't want to get our hope's up, so it's not even worth it, and so we just won't hope at all. And we're always maybe looking on the, the gloomy side of life. Maybe we'll call ourselves realists or something along these lines. Uh, I used to be an engineer, so people would always ask me, well, is the glass half full or half empty? And I would tell them, well, the glass is twice as big as it needs to be. Right? So, <laughs> But that's just me. So we have Eeyore on this one end of the spectrum. I want to take you back with me for a moment to 2009, the NFC Championship game, Minnesota Vikings versus, they remember? New Orleans Saints. I went back and I watched the YouTube clip of what happened in that game and I literally started to get emotional. For those of you who don't know, the the Minnesota Vikings have not won a Super Bowl, ever. (laughs) But this year, 2009, we thought this could be our year, guys. We had Brett Favre, we had Brett Favre, right? He was going to take us all the way, and he kind of almost did. We got all the way to this NFC Championship game, we were playing against the Saints. The game went back and forth quite a bit. And it's interesting, when you go back and you look at the numbers, Minnesota actually had much higher as far as like uh, running yards and, and a lot of statistics like that, but we had too many turnovers. But anyway, it, it came down towards the fourth quarter, and we were neck and neck. The game was tied, and Minnesota had the ball, and we were making our way down the field, and it looked like we were going to be able to get within field goal range. We were so close. We were just, just like on the outskirts of it, right? And so there's, I don't know, two, three minutes left in the game, Brett Favre, He he, he pulls back to pass, and we're thinking, this is going to be it, this is going to be it. He throws it, interception. Interception. New Orleans gets the ball, game goes into overtime, New Orleans wins. Now, at that moment, I made a vow to myself, I will never get my hopes up over the Minnesota Vikings ever again, (laughs) because I have shed way too many tears. Not just metaphorical tears, but I've stuck to that vow to this day. If we don't get our hopes up, we won't have to worry about them being crushed. Now, what is this all about? Why do we do this? Well, it's actually kind of a self-preservation technique. It's a, a way of saying, look, if, if all of this you know, bad stuff can happen... I'm just going to to live as if it's going to, and then, you know, I can kind of protect myself. It's a way of insulating uh, insulating ourselves against being hurt, because some of us, many of us, most of us, all of us have been hurt in one type, in one way, shape, or form, right? So this Idea that we, we, we kind of uh, self preserve and we turn in on ourselves is the human condition. This idea of, of, of kind of selfishly trying to ward off anything that may cause us pain. Now, the reformers actually had a word for this uh, it's a Latin phrase called incurvatus in se. Can you say that with me, in curvatus en se? That's not important, there won't be a quiz. But what this this is talking about is, you can picture an armadillo, for example. You know what an armadillo does where it curls up into a ball to protect itself? What this is talking about is the natural condition of the human heart where we are curved in upon ourselves. One source gives what I think is the best definition I've ever heard of this condition. It says this, despite our best efforts to get beyond ourselves, to love and serve others to the best of our ability, human beings find it impossible to escape the gravity well of self-interest. Human beings find it impossible to escape the gravity well of self-interest, Eor can't get out of his rain cloud. Now, we have the other end of the spectrum. We have Pollyanna. Pollyanna is is based on a uh, well, it's the character from a book, I believe, in the around 1916 or so. And Pollyanna was an orphan who went to live with her aunt. And Pollyanna has this view of life. She had been through some really difficult stuff, some really dark times. And so Pollyanna, she does this thing, it's called the glad game. She plays the glad game, where in every situation she's in in life, she makes it her goal, her job, to find out what's something I can be happy about. What is something that I can get excited about? Like, always look on the bright side of life. And Pollyanna, the character is one thing, but this term Pollyanna in our day and age is is used to describe someone who is overly optimistic, who only sees life through kind of these rose-colored lenses, only sees the good, does not see the bad, is not willing to face the bad. Now, interestingly enough, the problem that Pollyanna has is actually the same problem that Eeyore has in that this, too, is a self-preservation technique. Because Pollyanna, she is saying that, you know, if if I don't look at any of the bad stuff, if I don't actually face up to the difficult, painful things uh, in life, then everything will be okay, and I can just sort of dwell in my bubble here, and I won't get hurt. Eeyore comes at it from the opposite end, where he's saying, I don't want to get my hopes up at all, and, and she is, Pollyanna is saying uh i don't want to face any of these bad things right so that i can keep myself safe and comfortable same problem in curvatus and say curved in upon ourselves now don't get me wrong having a positive attitude in life is good But expecting life to be always good is bad. Having a positive attitude is good. Expecting life to be always good is is bad. Why would that be? Well, the bottom line is that if we're not willing to look at the sinful, fallen, broken condition of our own hearts and the world in which we live, what need do we have of Jesus? If things aren't really that bad, what need have we of a Savior? So that's Eeyore, that's Pollyanna, that's kind of the spectrum we're talking about. Now, Some of you might be hearing this and thinking, okay, well, we can't go to that one extreme, can't go to the other. There's got to be some happy middle ground, right? There's got to be some sort of place where we can be on the hope to despair spectrum where maybe we use wisdom to determine when to despair and when to hope. Like maybe there are some really bad situations in life that call us to despair, and maybe there are some really good situations in in life and, and promises from God that cause us to hope. Here's the problem with that, though, is it turns hope into an intermittent thing. It makes hope something that's there some of the time, but not all of the time which is totally against what the author of Hebrews says when he says we have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and sure and secure. So in that case, hope is not really hope because there's no guarantee that it will be there. Say, all right, Pastor Luke, (laughs) what's left, right? Eeyore, he's out. Pollyanna, out. Out. And this weird sort of neutral Switzerland middle ground, that's out too? What's left? Well, here's the thing. Every single one of those positions, those worldviews we have spoken about thus far, lack one key ingredient. They lack the promise of God. They lack the promise of God. Because you see, hope is only as sure and secure as the thing it is anchored to. And so Pollyanna and Eeyore and and the, the lukewarm kind of person, these are people who don't have their anchor secured in anything sure and in anything certain. So what is Christian hope then? What is Christian hope all about? Well, let's say it this way. Christian hope is a buoyant confidence in God's promises. Christian hope is a buoyant confidence in God's promises. You know what a buoy is? Out in a lake or an ocean is this marker that's, that's put there to maybe mark out a channel or a swimming area or, or something. And the thing about a buoy is it does go down like, when you push a buoy down, it will go down. But it always comes back up to the top, doesn't it? And so this is what hope is. is, is it's, it's buoyant in the sense that, uh, not that it doesn't face difficult things, or that it doesn't, like, bottom out. But at the same time, when it does that, God is always bringing it back to the surface because it is anchored to something. And it's not going to drift away either, right? So that's what we're talking about with Christian hope. And in fact, that is exactly what Jeremiah spoke about in our text for this morning Jeremiah 33:13 excuse me 14 14 through 16 the days are coming declares the Lord when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. You see, Jeremiah prophesied during a very unique time in Israel's history. When you go back and, and read some of the prophets, most of the time you get the sense that these are not the kind of guys that, that you would want on your, uh, on your team really because they're, they're, they're prophesying a lot of really bad, really dark stuff, right? Like they're saying, sin is coming, you guys have sinned, God's judgment is coming and the Babylonians are going to come so, and to, to punish you. So this time in Israel's history is just before and after what's known as the exile, which is this watershed event in the history of, of Israel. And, and Jeremiah, he prophesies actually on both sides of that. So he, he is there present with the nation as they're going through all of this judgment and as they are heading into exile, but he's also there during the exile. And so... Isaiah is speaking to people who are going to be punished for their sins, and yet, and yet, he is reminding them that there is hope. He is reminding them that God will not punish, he will not harbor his anger forever. God will bring back a remnant to the promised land of Israel. There is reason to hope. And not just that, not only is that the immediate context of it, that, that the, the Israelites in exile will be brought back into the promised land, but that, in fact, points ahead, and it reminds us, and it, it, it's a promise to us that God is sending us a Messiah to release us from the exile of our own sin. There is hope here, and it's a hope that's grounded in the promise of God. I'm going to tell you something really, really cool about Hebrew grammar, okay? I don't want you to lose your minds over this. I'm sure most of you will. Nothing more exciting than grammar, right? So, you know how in in English we have these tenses like past tense, uh, future tense, and uh, active and passive voice, things like that, right? When we're describing sentences. Well, in Hebrew, there is this thing called the prophetic perfect. Now, the perfect tense in Hebrew is generally used to translate a completed action, something in the past. It's usually translated as a past tense event, it's something that's, you know, over and done with. Interestingly enough, in our passage today, when Jeremiah is prophesying the coming of a Messiah, this shoot from the stump of David, he is doing so in the prophetic perfect, which is he is doing so in the past tense. And yet this is hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus has actually come. Now, why would he do that? The event is still in the future. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. You see, in the uh, in the mind of Jeremiah, as he is speaking this, this promise has already been fulfilled. You see, that's how sure and how certain God's promises are: is that the moment they are spoken, there is no question about their fulfillment. And so he is able to see future events as if they were actually completed, over and done with, in the rearview mirror because the god that we serve is a promise keeping god who never fails to come through for us there is a book movie little women it's a uh, it's a fun christmas time type movie and uh, I love this film. It takes place around the time of the Civil War, and it, it follows this family, the March family. They're they're kind of poor. They're, their father has lost everything. They're in the midst of, of poverty, and so they're trying to survive, just sort of scraping by during these difficult war times. One of the, the sisters goes, and and, and she, she helps out a neighbor to make some money. Another one ends up babysitting uh, one of the nearby families who was sick, and she ends up getting sick and has a you know, a, a very poor life because of that. So it's these kind of dire, bleak circumstances. And the father, after, uh, he, in this film, the father is, is not present there with the family, okay? He's serving off as a chaplain during the Civil War. He's a pastor. And in this one scene from the film, it's one of the most beautiful scenes, is the whole family is gathered around. This is, this is around Christmas time. And they've been singing carols and and playing the piano. And and the the whole room is is decorated in all of these Christmas colors, right? And then the door opens. And in comes the dad. He's home from war. They had received letters from him. They knew that he was coming back at some point. They just didn't know when. But out of the dark out of the the night, out of this this snowy winter storm, the father walks in and he fulfills his promise to be there for his children. This is the God we serve, a promise-keeping God. And it is a God who tells us that the days are coming. The days are coming, says the Lord, Do you find yourself believing this, that the days are coming, that Jesus, God in the flesh, has come and is coming again to rescue a sin-laden world from its bondage, that in the midst of these divided, seemingly hopeless times, there is reason to hope that God will fulfill his promises. You see, this is the piece of the puzzle that Eeyore, Pollyanna, and those who occupy the lukewarm middle ground all lack. A promise. Hope is only as secure as the promise it's anchored to. So as we enter this season of Advent, this time of of watchful expectation, this time of waiting. May we do so, holding fast to God's promise. The days are coming, he tells us. Let us live in light of that hope.